0: Welcome to another United States Studies Center webinar. Um, we're so pleased to be able to bring these to you, and they're, we're doing about two a week at the moment. Uh, and so pleased that we've we've been able to continue to uh, bring a, an awful lot of content to you through this through this new medium in these in these challenging circumstances. And and today's a, a, a real great treat for us because. Um, our, our, our guest today is uh, Bethany Allen-Ibrahimian, who writes for Axios. Now, Axios is a relatively new entrant into the media landscape in the United States. It's a, it's a terrific online um, publication, if you will. Uh, but Bethany is charged with managing the China coverage uh, for Axios. And and the fact that there is a dedicated China desk at Axios, I think tells you a lot about sort of what's going on in the United States at the moment, number one, and, and how a uh, a new service looking to distinguish itself and with a big emphasis on its DC coverage in particular, thought it appropriate and necessary to to stand up uh, a, a separate channel, if you will, dedicated to China that, as I said, Bethany, Bethany runs. And uh, you can sign up for a regular updates from from many of the Axios channels but the the one I I, I take Bethany's uh, updates uh, at least once a week and and I'm frequently on on the website, on the Axios website the rest of the time too. Um, um, Our good friend uh, Jonathan Swan, uh, an expatriate Australian, uh, anchors um, their White House coverage for instance and so many roads for the US Study Center run back to Axios and today uh, we're really delighted to be uh, hosting Bethany who at one point we thought might actually be in Australia in 2020 alas that didn't turn out to be but we're nonetheless delighted to have her with us today um, Bethany just some of the career credentials here I think we, we ought, I ought to introduce Bethany properly and making you aware of this um, Bethany uh, is based in Washington She was the lead writer of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists who reported on uh, the the, the body of work collectively known as the China Cables, which detailed classified Chinese government documents revealing the inner workings of China's detention camps uh, in uh, Xinjiang province. Uh, Prior to coming to Axios, Bethany uh, wrote on national security uh, for the Daily Beast, and she was also an editor and reporter at Foreign Policy Magazine. Um, Bethany's uh, academic credentials are second to none: language training at Millbury College, um, a, a master's degree in East Asian Studies at Yale University, and um, a graduate certificate uh, from the Hopkins Nanjing Center uh, for Chinese and American Studies. And has also, in, in total, has lived in China for four years herself. So, eminently well qualified. For the, for the job that she currently has at Axios and, and has been belting it out of the park uh, with the coverage that Axios is, is producing uh, on China. And, and why China? Well, Let's just briefly talk about that. Look, for the US Study Center, and particularly this US Study Center based in Australia, look, it's, it's only question number one. Uh, in, in foreign policy at the moment, and with especially important consequences for Australia. And I guess if you're tuning into this webinar today, you already knew that. Um, um, there is no greater foreign policy dilemma at the moment than US-China relations. Uh, that has been uh, put on steroids, if you will, uh, by COVID-19, which was already on steroids because of the way the Trump administration was, was prosecuting its relationship with China. And of course, the implications for Australia are immense. Every foreign policy conversation in Australia turns to US-China within about 30 seconds and stays there for the rest of the day. Um, And that's certainly true for us at the US Study Center. Um, And so for that reason, we were like so delighted to think that we might've actually had Bethany in Australia uh, earlier this year. Um, we were immensely disappointed when that couldn't um, uh, come to fruition, but we're, we're so delighted to be able to have this opportunity, um, the remainder of this hour, with Bethany. Bethany, thank you for doing this for us.
1: Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really pleased uh, to be able to, to finally join you, even though I wasn't able to come to Australia because of the coronavirus. Um, but thank you for that really kind introduction, Simon, and um, thanks to everyone who is, who is here. And I look forward to, to your questions uh, after, in, in a few minutes after my presentation. Um, so today, I'm, so I'm gonna go ahead and put my slide deck up and uh, get that going. All right. I wanna talk about the impact of the coronavirus crisis on the future of America's China policy and and what it's doing right now in D.C. uh, to our conversations on China and uh, to to our policy and to our politics here in the U.S. Uh, hmm. So I just, ah, there we go. Right now, the U.S.-China relationship is, is, at, a, is at a real low. It's, uh, it's the lowest point it's been in possibly decades. Um, and certainly, I would say three weeks ago, that was the case. The week that China kicked out 13 American journalists from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Time, Time Magazine, I believe um, – uh, no, the Washington Post. It was the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and, and New York Times. That's basically, it's, it's like one step down from kicking out American diplomats. And that was, you know, the result of a, a kind of a downward spiral. And as Simon mentioned, tensions have been building in the relationship for the past three years since Trump's election. Uh, and that's especially over the past year, as for example, Secretary Pompeo has gotten a lot more vocal and a lot more confident in his criticisms of China. Um, Trump has, you know, continued to, I think, surprise Chinese leaders in his willingness to really take China head on. The FBI's uh, crackdown on Chinese uh, scientists not just chinese scientists but, but scientists in the u.s with ties to uh, chinese institutions and to the thousand talents program there's been several things especially in the past year that have built up and then in the past two months it's really taken a nosedive i said as i said there's that the tit-for-tat media war at journalist expulsions we kicked out around 60 media workers who worked for the um for various Chinese state-run news outlets here in the US. Uh, And then with the coronavirus, there is intense anger in the US. And it's not just in DC. It's not just politicians. It's across the country if you look at polling. Americans in general are very angry at China and have the lowest opinion of China in a long time. And that's pretty much across the board. And there's a lot of anger about the way that China has approached its messaging, especially uh, since the beginning of February, anger about the disinformation that they have put forward, lying about uh, the you know the cover-up, denying the cover-up, uh, putting out claims repeatedly that it was the US military that created the coronavirus and, and planted it in Wuhan and that kind of disinformation. So there's intense anger in DC because of that so that's that's been the cause there of of where we are right now in in the relationship. I want to talk about something that's really new. and I, I have a question mark here, the end of the bipartisan consensus. Maybe we might be looking at the end of of what you know has really been a bedrock of the in the u s the the, the u s policy community and 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 in you know politicians in the u s, which has been what we call the bipartisan consensus on China, but that appears to be cracking. So for more than two years, Republicans and Democrats have, for the most part, agreed that the U.S. needs a China policy that acknowledges Beijing's hard authoritarian turn and the serious challenge that China's growing power uh, presents to, to U.S. interests. I want to be clear that this consensus does it represents an attitude, it's a belief that China is a challenge. It's not a comprehensive set of actual policies that everyone agrees should be taken. People have different ideas about what should be done. I would say even more than that though, there's, there, isn't, there hasn't been a good sense, especially among Democrats or on the left of what should be done, simply an acknowledgement that there is a problem. So I think in some ways you could say it's a more accurate description of the phenomenon that we're all talking about here is the death of the engagement narrative. The idea that if we engage with China, if we welcome them into institutions, it will somehow magically become like us and very few people now really hold to that or are willing to at least say that publicly. That seems to have left quite a number of Democrats without much to say at all when it comes to China, particularly, um, particularly on the Hill, I would say, if you look at initiatives and resolutions and draft bills and bills that are actually passed, um, uh, but, but I mean even just draft bills coming out of our representatives uh, on, on the Hill, Democrats are willing to sign on to a lot of things, but they don't typically lead them. They're not really vocal. Democratic China policy in the past two to three years has mainly just seemed sort of like Republican lights, you know, we'll do what they do, but just like maybe not so meanly. Um, so that's that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the consensus. It looks like it might be starting to unravel. Let me do the TikTok for you of that. So we obviously, as many countries, are under intense pressure right now due to the coronavirus, and that's that pressure is 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 really, um, I think that, that it's it's obviously the factor here that, that's doing this. So the opening shot really for this was when Trump referred to the coronavirus as the Chinese virus and the Wuhan virus. This was the divide, the, the immediate dividing line between where you're gonna stand. Are you gonna are you gonna say yes, I'm willing to use that phrase or are you gonna speak out against it? And very quickly we saw Democrats and Republicans pull to either side on this. And what we've seen from there is one, a huge rise across the country in racism and racist attacks and remarks against Asian Americans, and Democrats really rallying to that and saying we need to protect these people. And deciding that the way they need to protect them is by not talking about China. That's been the, that decision. And Republicans have said China's trying to erase the truth. They did something bad. We need to make sure that that record is not erased. We need to point to them and make sure that they cannot rewrite history as it's happening and say that this did not start in Wuhan. Um, so Republicans believe China is to blame for the global pandemic and that, um, Beijing's propaganda campaign aims to erase the truth But the Democrats say that emphasizing the coronavirus links to China inflames racism against Asian Americans and that it's a cover for the Trump administration's own mishandling of the epidemic. And I'd say in the past two weeks, we've really seen that taking off with Republicans really doubling down. On saying this is China China's fault, we need to we need to launch an investigation. We need to make uh make it possible for Americans to sue China for damages. Let's talk about reparations. Um, Trump just yesterday announced that the U.S. is going to freeze funding for the World Health Organization in part because of how it has seemed to echo China's uh, Beijing's own rhetoric, the Chinese Communist Party's own own rhetoric regarding the coronavirus. So you. You've seen such a doubling down, and uh, I believe that that is in it's in part uh, you know because they because this you know because China did cover it up, but it's also in part because they know that they did that the the Trump administration did not do a good job um, especially in the first two months or the first the crucial six weeks when from when we got our own first coronavirus cases up until they started, you know, the, our, our, the curve of the number of cases started really rising exponentially. We are in, we're in the middle of, um, you know, a, a horrible crisis. The United States has the highest number of, of deaths of any country. We have the highest number of cases of any country. The emperor has no clothes. Our administration messed up. And it is, I think, easier for Republicans to point fingers at China than, than to acknowledge that. And Democrats don't want to let that happen. So the the bottom line right now in DC is that pushing back against China in any way has become politically toxic for Democrats. They're seen as supporting racism and enabling the Trump administration. And I wanna give an example of this. It's uh, I think a, a perfect sort of tempest in a teacup to explain the, how exactly this is breaking apart the bipartisan consensus, there was a bipartisan resolution in the House that was introduced in late March. Um, I read it. It's it was very factual. It was it was a, a TikTok of the the early cover up. You know, this happened on this date. This happened on this date. China did this on this date. This doctor was arrested on this date. Um, And then it also, and then it said, but we know and everyone knows that the virus originated in Wuhan and we don't believe Chinese disinformation. And then it also, it condemned the um, detention camps in Xinjiang. And it also condemned the expulsion of American journalists. This is not controversial. It's, it's, it's not, it's very factual. Uh, Jim Banks, who is a pretty fiery Republican um, representative from Indiana, Uh, demanded that leaders in Beijing publicly state that there's no evidence that COVID-19 originated anywhere else but China. The resolution very notably avoided controversial phrases, did not say Chinese virus or Wuhan virus. And Seth Moulton, who is a Democratic representative from Massachusetts, he was the only Democratic signatory on the resolution. He ended up retracting his support for the resolution after he came under heavy criticism from primary challengers and from Representative Judy Chu a Democrat from California and and others. So I I have the screenshot here of this tweet. This is from Roger Lau, who was the campaign um, manager for Elizabeth Warren for her presidential campaign. So a pretty prominent guy in the Democratic Party. And he said, responding to this, the introduction of this resolution, this is just so wrong. It's lazy scapegoating hateful, fear-mongering, and just flat-out dangerous. And Asian Americans have been victims of hate crimes that have been incited by ignorance like this. This is a global crisis and we're all in this together. This seems to be a fairly, uh, something of an overreaction to um, a very fact-based resolution. And you get a sense of the pressure that Democrats are under. Um, I I think, to some extent, from their base and from others to distance themselves from anything the Trump administration is doing and anything that Republicans are doing related to China. So here's just a couple more quotes. This one on the left is from Duty 2. This is her criticism of the resolution. During a pandemic like this people are afraid and angry and directing that anger towards China puts Asian American and Pacific Islanders at risk as we have already seen with the insults and assaults against them. And Seth Moulton when he through his support for the resolution said the resolution has caused division the substance overshadowed by President Trump's divisive xenophobic attempts to deflect from his administration's abysmal response to this virus I apologize for that and I am withdrawing my support for the resolution so to be clear it is now politically unviable at this moment for Democrats to express support for condemning the concentration camps in Xinjiang the um, expulsion of journalists from China, it's just too toxic. All of this is breathing new life back into the engagement narrative that we all thought was dead. Call, calls for cooperation, which are truly legitimate at this time, right? Uh, we There must absolutely be public health cooperation, global cooperation right now. Um, But I I think the idea is that there's a strong sense among the pro-engagement crowd that they were right all along. You know, they can say, see, this is what happens when we don't cooperate. This pandemic wouldn't be so bad. The U.S.-China relations wouldn't be so bad. This is what happens when you pursue hostilities. I will say, though, that the reason I have a question mark about whether or not the bipartisan consensus is really cracking is that this could get better uh, when the coronavirus crisis passes. It's hard to say at this point. Um, I I don't know. But but a reason I think that we really are headed down a, um, a forking path here is because of the presidential election that is coming up. So I want to talk about that, China and the 2020 election. Hashtag Beijing Biden. The Trump campaign is planning to make Joe Biden's posture towards China one of its major lines of attack during the 2020 campaign. The politics surrounding the US relationship with China may become a bigger domestic issue in this campaign than in any presidential contest in the last half century. And Trump officials have been, have, they'd already been planning to brand Biden as soft on China. But the coronavirus pandemic has stoked public anger towards Beijing and made the attack more resonant in polling. So this hashtag BeijingBiden is a reference to um, a campaign that is starting it. There's a, a pro-Trump super PAC that this week is uh, launching. Um, a website called, I think it's called BeijingBiden.com, oh dear. Um, they're, they're also doing a bunch of ads that showcase Biden, the show Biden as being soft on China, as being an enabler, as um, opposing the life-saving measures that Trump has taken, such as the the early travel ban on China. Um, I think that was the end of January. So here's just a quick screenshot of one of these ads. And this is from a speech that Biden gave at Sichuan University, I believe it was in 2011 here's you know so they have you know on this ad they have the recording of his speech and he says it's in our self-interest that china continue to prosper uh and when that's sandwiched with you know accusations against his son hunter biden uh and you know potential um financial benefits that that hunter biden gets from china and from other statements from Biden, the idea is that uh, you know, Biden won't stand up to China. He's not willing to make, to make Beijing suffer and that that's bad for America. Um, so that's, that's sort of my brief, my brief outline there. I welcome um, a Q&A with Simon and with all of you and uh, looking forward to talking more. Exit out of here.
0: Great. Fantastic! Thanks for that, Bethany. And um, yep. it's terrific when um, <laughs> our guest actually prepares some slides like that to, to really frame the discussion. That that's 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 terrific. Um, look, there's there's a lot there. I, I I'd I'd like to get into. I'll I'll limit myself though to make sure we've got plenty of time for uh, live questions uh, from the floor. Um, hundreds of people uh signed up and 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 um we've almost got 200 people uh listening in on this and and there's a lot of questions coming in so so that that's terrific and just a reminder to people as you type live questions for us to pick up please keep them short there's so many coming in and as our as uh, janine and mara uh sort through those um uh, and and get them to to myself to put to to bethany Um, The shorter and more concise you can make those, uh, uh, the better. Just a a, a pro tip uh, for the webinar audience. Um, um, Bethany, I think one of the things that jumped out at me was one of your opening remarks, and that is uh, your observation about the depth of anger uh, in in the US population that the attitude towards China is no longer a policy community, um, uh, inside the beltway phenomenon, um, but is now well and truly in your characterization sort of out and running in the, in the, in the, in the general population. Now, part of that is we've got a reality piece to that. Um, but we've also got some stoking of the fires by, by Trump, but, um, just wondering you you mentioned some surveys i'm just wondering if you could perhaps just tease out what it is you're seeing or hearing about the depth of that in the united states at the moment
1: yeah uh well one of the um you know some of this is is related to campaigns and for example i mentioned um that there's this pro-trump super pro trump super pack that is rolling out this um these ads against biden and this week and one of the reasons they're doing that is because their polling has indicated that the anti, the the, the um, anti-China stuff and attacking Biden's China policy really resonates with the base right now, sure. uh, and that's unusual um, for for China to really resonate with, um, you know, a large group of people. It's. It's not, it hasn't been a nationally resonant policy issue before. Um, Now it it seems that it is.
0: Yeah. You know, we're in, you know, we, we, we get to the States a lot. And as I said in the setup, this issue is just so central to the work of, you know, myself and our foreign policy and defense team and many of our scholars and experts at the center. And you get, that was our sense of it, right? That this was an issue... That had tremendous currency and tremendous bipartisan support around inside Washington. But
1: right, yes.
0: the media and the general public, it was more about Russia to the extent there was a foreign policy, a bad actor out there. Um, and so that, this represents, I think, you know, a real sea change and, and not an unexpected one. Um, uh, given given the circumstances, you laid them out. The other thing I just want to pick up briefly, towards the end of your remarks, Bethany, you said the pro-engagement crowd. Um, who are they? Because they've been deep, deep underground for the last couple of years. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, Joe Hockey, the Australian ambassador, former Australian ambassador, just recently finished his term, but he used to say, China hasn't got a friend in town, meaning D.C., Um, and I'd say, well, how about Silicon Valley or how about wall street and you go, oh, well, maybe, and a little bit there, but, but who is the pro engagement crowd after so many years of this, certainly inside DC consensus, who are the, who are you referring to there? I just made a note of there. Who is that pro engagement crowd in your view these days?
1: Yes. Um, I will list some names, but before I do that, I want to say that these are just general names and I am not pinning any statements to them at this time. So, but just as a general, um, you know, answer to that question, it would be people like Susan Thornton. Um, actually there's three Susans I can think of right now. The, the suit we can just call them the Susans, Susan, Susan Thornton, Susan Shirk, and, um, Susan Rice. (laughs) Um, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Who else? There's a number of think tankers. Um, I I would, you know, people who, certainly some people um, who were serving under Obama, um, maybe his earlier years. Um, So, you know, those. Th- those would come to mind. I think I think Susan Thornton is a really good person to to have in your re- in mind as sort of an engagement type, and she was pushed out at, of state very early in the Trump administration. Um, right. Okay. And there's a lot. There's a long list of of uh, researchers and scholars who I would put in in that, and they have been less quiet, um, but they don't. But they're not in. You know, they're not. In power, they're not in the administration, um,
0: and, and you know so. Understood. That that's helpful. I think some context, you know, and again for Australian audiences, um, the think tank community in the United States is a massive and b. Given the way that new administrations in the United States get to make a ton of political appointments into state, into the National Security Council into the pentagon um there's this sort of flip from when there's a change of party right bethany there's this sort of people leave government and there's there is a think tank (laughs) wait job often waiting for a lot of those people and i think also you know there's an understanding on the think tank side that a that's in their interest but b people will go back into government um if there's a change
1: yeah, that's right. It's, you could almost say that think tanks are a, a piece, a piecemeal shadow government, uh, sometimes they, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, there's someone that runs a think tank. I'll, I'll, I'll hold on that. But, um, <laughs> uh, um, anyway, uh, um, look, let's get into some of the questions that, that have come up from the floor because there's some, you know, there's so much here and this is a topic, that, as I said, has so much salience in Australia Uh, and so some great questions here. Look, I think a number of them, I'm just looking at the ones we got in as people signed up for the event. There's a a number here, Bethany, that really, I think, more broadly fit under the topic of decoupling. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, how you said earlier America and, you know, I've heard um, former Australian Prime Minister uh, Kevin Rudd say this, um, America has an attitude about China. It doesn't really have a coherent policy. Um, but there are elements of it, right? I mean, um, the decisions about uh, Huawei and in, in, in ZTE, um, 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 the, the FBI um, and the Department of Justice more broadly really raising alarm bells about research collaborations around sensitive technologies, particularly for the higher ed sector that, isn't accustomed to thinking about these matters, perhaps in those terms. Um, I'm wondering if you could perhaps give for an Australian audience a little bit of the lay of the land of the extent to which, away from the obvious stuff about tariffs, um, other other components of, of decoupling that, you know, before COVID sort of started to dominate the headlines, mm-hmm. but the United States, and and was sort of, ex, you know, key c- components of that bipartisan consensus, perhaps you were, you were talking about, at least not getting a lot of pushback from Congress.
1: Sure. So the the first year of the Trump administration, um, apart from the trade war, there was not, there was, there wasn't, it's not that there wasn't so much a China policy, there wasn't even an Asia policy. Um, There were just, there was no coherent even statements about, about what that would be. Uh, besides changing uh, Asia, Asia Pacific Command to the Pacific Command to the Indo-Pacific Command, I mean there was really nothing. So uh, in the second year and the third year is when we really started to see more actions happening. So I would kind of characterize this administration's China policy as a series of campaigns rather than a series of policies. So it's like they identify, you know, something that troubles them and they go on a campaign to try to fix that one issue um, in a -a whack-a-mole kind of a way. And they have done that with more and more and more issues. And so, um, you know, we saw that with with Huawei, you know, they identified uh, Huawei as a a national security and also a strategic problem. you know, did, approached it in a way that I find um, pretty typical of this administration, which is to try to stop something from happening, but without trying to replace it with anything. So it was, you know, going and telling, especially European partners, don't partner with Huawei, don't partner with Huawei, but not trying to, to lead 5G development in any other way. And so then we, then we started getting a big FBI campaign to, um, and, you know, the issues here, and this is where the bipartisan consensus comes in, is that pretty much everyone in DC recognizes that Huawei is a problem. So there hasn't been a ton of democratic pushback on these issues because we know it's a problem, just that no one is really knowing what, you know, what to do about it, so whack-a-mole seems fine for now. Um, And, you know, the same with with the FBI um, crackdown on unreported, unregistered, Um, partnerships and research collaborations between U.S. medical institutions and scientists and, um, and universities and their Chinese counterparts, trying to get rid of those, trying to make people register and indeed indicting some people for lying to the FBI, but without articulating what is actually okay. And definitely, without articulating how can we continue international scientific collaboration while trying to keep America's national security interests secure, um, and we I I would say that we've seen not a snowball effect exactly, but more and more of these campaigns kind of coming out um, of a more confident administration, and I would say that again, Secretary Pompeo has been. Um, has really gotten on board with this in the past year, year and a half. And so we've started to see the State Department take some, I would say, innovative steps um, with mixed results, but most certainly innovative. And we saw that this year with the State Department's designation of five Chinese state media outlets in the US as foreign missions, which was the first time that the Foreign Mission Act has ever been used in that way. And that that forced these... um, Outlets to register with the State Department and stuff. Now that ended up backfiring. Um, and that's a bit what eventually resulted in China expelling US journalists, which is exactly the reason that in years past, the principle of reciprocity, which is perhaps the closest thing that this administration or one of the closest things this, this administration has to, to laying out a principle for a policy. And that's the principle of reciprocity, as Pompeo has um, emphasized, which is that you treat us. This way, we'll treat you that way, and the reason that this that th- that kind of principle has been controversial is for exactly this reason that if you do something, then that it allow it kind of gives cover for um, other governments to retaliate, and also it kind of looks like you're letting an authoritarian government set your own policies. Um, sure. that I think that's sort of an out, an outline there.
0: Sure. Thanks. Um, I guess. Since we're talking about five um, G and, and and some of these measures, um, um, Australia actually was the first of the Five Eyes partners um, to um, put up, you know, a hard wall against Huawei and ZTE on the five G rollout. Um, it comes after a few years down the track a lot of Australians forget this that um, a few years prior um, the Australian government um, put up barriers to um, uh, Huawei participating in the national broadband network here in Australia Um, um, but there's a you know I think I think two questions here Bethany one is um, your sense of does that have any visibility in the China uh, watching community in, in, in Washington. The fact that an an ally like Australia was actually out of the blocks, um, a little earlier than the United States itself on, on, on these things, but also the other thing I'd ping you on, um, is, is there any, the, 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 the discussion in Washington around how this plays for allies. So here in Australia, there's a massive debate about. And it gets characterized, there are very sort of simple, almost cartoon-like versions of it. Australia is going to have to choose between China and the United States. There's a very sort of reductionist version um, of it. But a sense of the pressure that allies, Japan, South Korea, perhaps Australia as well, uh, face in in as the senior alliance partner the United States prosecutes a, a strategy or at least gives voice to an attitude uh, with gusto and, and sometimes not a lot of nuance or subtlety as the allied partners might prefer.
1: Yeah sure, so I'll address the first question about Australia. Um, I, my answer is going to be um, very much like more like pro-Australia or like than maybe um, some people. Australia's China policy has loomed very large in my own mind for several years. I've followed it very closely, um, Australia has, as you know, really led the world in the conversation about China's covert influence and interference. And behind the scenes in Washington, so among people who really do China for a living in you know, numerous um, different offices in the government and also among um, you know, certain researchers and other people in the private sector, uh, what Australia has done has been I mean I would say almost a, a framework um, or something for the u.s to model its policies after and uh, I've seen that very clearly in in policies that have come out of the Trump administration that a lot of the stuff that this administration has done that I approve of are things that were tried first in Australia or where the conversations were happening first in Australia and uh, because there was very close, Communications, um, you know, through five eyes, the five eyes partnership and other kinds of exchanges and communications between the two governments, um, you know, that's it's it's just been so clearly uh, an influence on what has happened in Washington, at least behind the scenes. That's not true by any means on the national in terms of the national discussion, or you know, even what more mainstream politicians are saying about it. Um, but for example, Marco Rubio, I am sure is, you know, has followed what's happened in Australia extremely closely, and he's a very influential senator on the China issue. So certainly Australia has played an outsized role. And if you look at the 5G discussions, again, people in the US who pay attention to what's happening with 5G uh, around the world have pointed to repeatedly both Australia's signals intelligence and UK's GCHQ, their signals intelligence, making statements, you know, very, warning very strongly against Huawei, warning their own governments very strongly against Huawei. And I remember in December, I think um, it was Aspie that published a post from, I can't remember his name, but the former Australian head of signals intelligence uh, there um, saying that they had tried to game out any possible way to sort of contain like could we let could we let Huawei into like the periphery of our networks? Like is there a way to ameliorate or alleviate the you know the possible risk? And the answer was no. <laughs> um, so you know certainly Australia has been very, really very, very boldly um taking on China in that way, which is, you know, it's really incredible to me for a country um, of Australia's size to do that. Uh, in terms of America's allies, I mean, our diplomacy has really, our State Department has really been hollowed out in the past three years. And, you know, so not it, so by no means entirely, but it, it has, it's been given much less emphasis and more of our policy is done by tweet or by sort of, you know, uh, swaggering announcement. And that certainly rubs many allies the wrong way. And if you look at, at Europe, um, you know, Germany is a good example, but uh, our allies in, in Europe, I think they feel so frustrated because on the one hand you have, you know, the US president saying really kind of horrid things about, you know, the people who are our best friends. Um, and then, but then expecting them to fall right into line on on Huawei. And again, again with, with, with 5G, very specifically, you know, why is it that Germany, that the UK, that now France have not simply said, oh, okay, United States, you say that you have intelligence that says Huawei is a risk. You're not showing us that intelligence. You're asking us to trust you. You know, what, why, the the, the conversations there behind the scenes are, if they, um, it really it goes back to more than just this administration. You know, through the NSA revelations, for example, in which you know the U.S. was doing things that were untrustworthy. Even back to the Iraq War, when we said just trust us, just trust us. And then now, in the past three years, you have this you know very swaggering kind of harsh um, uh, statements. It it feels like you know they like the U.S. is just not treating them well, and that there's it's really hollowed out the trust there.
0: Sure. Um, that's certainly the the feeling from europe sure um the um i mean you raise a great point about it's one thing to say no to huawei and zte on 5g but so what is the plan for 5g yeah and, you know that that's a perhaps a whole nother conversation that there's more perhaps a tech talk than a than a, a u.s china talk but but certainly a live part of the conversation um here in australia as well by the way and, and all around the world where governments are trying to figure out what to do here um there's a great question here um um from alana ford who asks that um u.s attorney general Barr recently gave a keynote speech um at the doj china initiative um which i happen to be at um in dc at C CS- ah. yeah um uh, and Barr, I remember it, uh, Barr uh, was a remarkable speech, he talked about China this is the Attorney General, this is not the Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense, this is the Attorney General talking about China as being America's most significant geopolitical adversary, uh, talking about economic security and sovereignty as being intertwined with national security with 5G being kind of exhibit A um, uh, for Barr. Um, How do you see, in the question, how do you see this evolving, uh, that conversation that is talking about sort of whole of government, whole of society uh, level of the threat? Um, The question is, does that, COVID-19 has to elevate that, right, and give that added urgency in your view? Or or elaborate on that if you don't mind, Bethany.
1: You mean the, how China presents the sort of whole of
0: society threat? Really how the narrative in the U.S. and Australia to some extent so this is not just a national security, economic security is national security. The two are so intertwined mm. uh, and that speaks to sort of the novelty yeah. and comprehensiveness of the, of the threat, number one, of the challenge and hence of the response that's needed from yeah. national governments and yes. the Alliance Network as well.
1: I think what's happened is that many of the things that seemed theoretical are now real in our houses in our living rooms. I don't have a mask. I literally do not have a medical mask. And as of two days ago, we're not allowed to go into a public indoor space without one and I don't have one. Why don't I have one? Because uh, you know, most of the masks are made in China and my experience is being replicated 50 million times across the, the United States. So a lot of the issues where you know, people seemed, and by people I mean, you know, prominent Republicans, prominent people in the Trump administration, they seemed like they were out there, like they were, What? who's talking about, de- you know, decoupling, that's not realistic, um, what do you mean industrial policy, what is this, the Cold War, those kinds of things now seem um, prescient, seem realistic, seem uh, not radical anymore, and I think we will we will see that. Uh, I think we're only just beginning to see the ramifications of that, because you know, uh, and going back to an earlier point, everyday average Americans are experiencing what supply line security means in their daily lives. So I, I think you know, in in this this election year and going forwards. The the conversation about China will be much more personal. I think people will be much more willing to consider ideas that they would not have considered before. And um, the idea of decoupling now, in fact, it it no longer even seems like a US-China issue. It seems to some extent like a global issue that countries around the world are realizing that even if they don't have some sort of geostrategic or geopolitical strategic rivalry with, with China, that it's not really safe for their populations to have a, a dependence on any single country anywhere.
0: Yeah.
1: And that maybe a sort of, you know, each country needs to consider its own supply line security in the future.
0: Yeah, look, every morning in the Australian media, that that's there's a story. We're speculating on that. And even, um, you know, a good friend of the US Study Centre, um, Australian expatriate, did very well in the US, running Dow Chemical, um, Andrew Liveris, um, person you know, dower supported the US Study Center over the years, and um, but Andrew is out there very vocally about Australia drank the globalization Kool Aid and it's time to you know reevaluate that proposition. And meantime, think tank economists, uh, one of ours is out there saying, Let's not throw the, the baby out with the bathwater. Um, but but I that's a great observation, Bethany. Thanks. And and that leads pretty naturally, if I may, to another look—a host of questions that come under this umbrella. And I'll try and summarise it with 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 one. And so, what happens if Biden wins? So, if there is a change of government, what happens in terms of policy? Given as you've just been articulating, Bethany, this realization at a mass level and the and sort of the jolt of relevance that china now has in mass american public opinion um where would that take a future u.s administration one presumably if there were to be a change of government would be led by joe biden
1: yeah great question it's interesting because uh, you know for the past several years um People like me, who are you know, do China for their their career, a bit hawkish, um, have wondered you know what will happen to the bipartisan consensus. Um, you know what will happen to China policy with if, if a Democrat the next time a Democrat is in office. And obviously, the past two months have kind of thrown that up in the air. You know what what will happen. Um, you know, six months ago, if you had asked me that question, I would have said, or even three months ago, I would have said, um, engagement is dead. And, you know, Democrat, there's no going back to that. And Democrats are going to have to learn how to differentiate a more realistic a more, you know, real politique kind of approach to China, um, but, but of their own, differentiate it from the Republicans, but have to find a way to do that themselves. Now, I think it's really hard to say, and um, I think in the next few months, maybe it will become a bit more clear as the narrative around the coronavirus um, maybe settles a bit, uh, because now you have two really um, totally opposite forces. One of them, as I mentioned earlier, is this... um, is the fear of racism in this country and the real racism that's happening and the the, the belief that we need to, to speak more carefully about China in order to protect our Chinese Americans. That's a really strong, deep core impulse of a Democratic Party. On the other hand, there is, I mean, you know, uh, 30,000 30, Americans have died now of the coronavirus and that is in part undeniably to some extent because of you know the Chinese system because of how it rewards um, cover-ups and suppression of information and that has come to our own shores. So there are these these two divergent really strong forces and what Biden will have to do is, is walk a very fine line between them and to do a better job of differentiating between fighting racism and fighting Chinese authoritarianism; these are separate things, right? They're, they've gotten a bit joined in Democratic Party rhetoric, um, and that's a big, big challenge, I think, that he will face. So, to answer your question, you know, what might a what might a Biden government look like? It, it depends very much on the people that he gets sure. uh, and who who he chooses. Um, he could, for example go the Pete Budej route. Um Pete had Mayor Pete had some really sharp China advisors who were very, very up on the the whole influence interference thing, but in a really smart, like pro-civil rights kind of way, he could kind of go that way. Um or, you know, he could he could go into um a more, I don't, I'm not going to say engagement, but like we, you know, we need to stand with our allies and partners, you know, to support democratic norms, but not really do much about it. Um, we'll, we'll have to see.
0: Sure. Um, just picking up a few again, some of these, some of these, um, some of these questions. Um, uh, John von Koalas, who's a professor of Chinese studies. Um, at the University of New South Wales, Um, our crosstown rival, as it were, um, uh, asks a really great question. Um, COVID-19 has blasted Xinjiang and um, Hong Kong off the headlines for a while. I'm just wondering, you know, your sense of that, where does that sit in the China conversation in Washington at the moment? Is it Sort of just wrapped up in that broadened out of you talking about civil rights earlier as being sort of a big possible component of a policy yeah. frame. Just has COVID 19 just blasted that away and everything's about sort of resilience and sovereignty and supply chains? What, what about the human rights um, agenda?
1: That'll come back. I I think right now, um, you know, our house is on fire. And so that's all we're going to talk about for now. But those are really, really deep and lasting issues that have um, a huge amount of, um, I guess, as an issue, they have a huge amount of support that runs very, very deep um, in the U.S., and the human rights community and among um, politicians, among researchers and journalists. Um, So I, I think once our crisis starts to settle down, those issues really will come back. And one reason that I think that is that certainly um, on the national, uh, you know, in our national debate, um, we're not talking right now about the detention camps in Xinjiang, but people who focus on China are still talking about them. And it comes up, for example, because Uh, we're very concerned about what might be happening in those camps. What happens if there is a COVID-19 outbreak in one of those camps? Because we're not going to know, like they're going to suppress that information. And there's, it's very, very bad um, health conditions. there, are overcrowding. It's it's a terrible concern. And the fact that we are having those conversations amongst ourselves, I think indicates that, um, that this is a strong and lasting issue. So those I think will definitely linger and continue to go strong in the future
0: um we're, we've got about five minutes to go so I'm gonna just we might try and do some a little bit of rapid fire but I don't want to don't want to compromise the the answers you're giving They're fantastic um, um but um look there's a there's a question here from um, Isabel uh, Wolfensberger um, should the coronavirus further weaken the less developed nations in the Asia Pacific region, uh, paving the way for China to have a stronger regional presence. Is that gonna have an implication for American posture in the region? Um, As as you'd be aware, uh, the US has a marine deployment uh, in Darwin, uh, Australia's most Northern city. Um, Isabel draws attention to that. I'm just wondering if you're, is the policy community in DC starting to think through China being opportunistic uh, in the region, and and what a U.S. response might be.
1: Yes, uh, people are paying attention to that. For example, um, j- just as an example, in the East and South China Seas, there are people paying very close attention to see if China might make a kind of a not a land grab, I guess a sea grab, um, if you will. Yeah, you know, there there are people who are really keeping close close eyes on this. Um, we do fully expect China to to try to take as much as it can right now. Um, it, it has a bit of a relative advantage, right? because it was it was the first place where there was the epidemic and, and thus it was one of the first to um, come out of it. And so while other countries in the region and around the world are kind of down, you know it's in a relatively strong position. And um, one other you know aspect that people are watching very closely, Relatedly, is um, will, will China go on a big a buying spree? Is it going to is it going to buy up a bunch of distressed assets, um, whether that's you know um, mines or you know financial institutions or um, land, even you know who th- these kinds of things? So there is a lot of attention being played to that, being um, placed on that. I do not, I do not foresee the U.S. Um, being so paralyzed that we're not able to engage or respond in in the Asia Pacific, um, even even now, you know, even now, I, I I don't I don't see that unless things get you know dramatically worse here. Um, I, I think it's really hard to say at this point, you know, in terms of maybe sort of bilateral relations between, for I don't know, China and Thailand or something, um, China and Vietnam. Um, if those countries, you know, if countries in Southeast Asia are significantly weakened, what, what that calculus will be but between China and that country, that's a lot of countries and a bit hard to predict, but I I, I do foresee the US still being very strong there.
0: Um, one thing we've got, a, a, again, a couple of questions from and I'll try and consolidate them. Um, how seriously in in DC is this, sort of hypothesis that the virus started life in a bioweapons state lab. Now, is that you know, just blame game Trump being Trump and the and his supporters in, you know, unconventional media outlets, shall we and sometimes conventional ones, by the way, yeah. um, giving a bit of oxygen to that. On the other hand, there's the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff got asked about it and gave what I thought was a pretty measured response and seeming, at least seeming to indicate that serious people are seriously interrogating the hypothesis. How it's happening so fast, Bethany, hard to pass so much it's coming out of DC from this distance. Can you just signpost that a little for us, best you can?
1: Yeah. um Yeah. I will say that it is being these these um, conspiracy theories I, I <laughs> are so, actually being but, but, yeah are no are actually being taken very seriously, and I consider them to be conspiracy theories, and they should not be taken consi- uh, seriously, and it I find it alarming that they are, especially the one about the the virus you know potentially having originated in a Chinese bioweapons facility hmm. um, you know, bec- that one—that one is just false because no epi- no cre- no credible epidemiologist in the world thinks that the virus shows any signs of having been manipulated. Now, that particular idea, uh, I think, is has a lot less currency now than it did a month ago. I mean, you know, I speak with a lot of people in the administration. I speak with people on the Hill. Many people have come to me and said, "What do you think about this? This seems, you know, is this possible?" I think it seems pretty legit, and I'm I'm always like, "No, no, 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 it's not. It's not legit." Another thing that we've seen just in the past, uh, well yesterday, and then and the, the, I think a week ago, there's been this succession of weeks um, from from White House officials or from from administration officials, intelligence officials uh, saying that perhaps uh, you know the Chinese government knew about this in November. That maybe this the virus originated not in a bioweapons facility, but in at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where it wasn't being engineered, but it was being studied, and then it was accidentally, you know, someone there um, got it, and they accidentally, you know, transmitted it outside of that facility let me just say about that that there is absolutely insufficient evidence that is currently publicly available to judge the veracity of that in one way or another and um i i don't we don't even know where it's coming from inside the administration you know we, we don't even know um who who is saying this or why so on that particular one that's not it's not a crazy thing to think it's an unreal it's a it's an unlikely thing but it's not crazy um so i uh Feel like it is like 20% of my job these days just urging caution to everyone and to, to say please wait until we know more um, but overall I would say we I have seen a plethora of, of really wild ideas and the reason for that is because this is a time of great fear and great uncertainty and in times like that people are willing to believe things that don't seem possible because we're currently living through a time that doesn't seem possible but it's real so I urge caution.
0: Thank you. And um, what, that's a great note to end on, um, we're, we're at the top of the hour. We're, we're out of time. I, I could keep going for another hour easily. Uh, Bethany, thank you so much. It's late in Washington tonight. Um, um Bethany's also a, a, a mom of a, of a, of a, of a young kid, um, and yeah. got a, an incredibly busy and hectic job at the moment. We're so grateful for this hour you've given us, Bethany, and, and moreover, the analytical clarity um, of your answers. They were just terrific. Um, I really hope we can do this again. Uh, this was immensely valuable for me, um, and I'm sure everybody uh, listening in the, the, you know, here we are an hour into this and people are starting to sign off, but, but, but we're, you know, and this is probably one of our most viewed webinars yet. Um, so thank you for that, Bethany.
1: Yeah, well, thank you so much for the invitation. I was, was so glad to be able to join you um, and best of luck. Okay.
0: And everybody, please, there's the website over my shoulder, ussc.edu.au. Uh, please take a look there. We've got um, our researchers are producing a ton of content at the moment related to COVID-19. How it's playing out for the australia u.s bilateral how it's playing out in the u.s impacting u.s politics but indeed as today's conversation indicates the, the consequences for u.s foreign policy which have obvious and immediate implications for for those of us here in australia um we've got more webinars coming up look for those on our website but that's it for today have a great weekend we're heading into the weekend here bethany it's a friday here uh, uh, yeah. Enjoy your Friday in the US. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. Bye -bye. Bye.
1: Thank you.